So I invite you to turn with me uh, in your Bibles uh, to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. This is a very familiar section of Scripture for you. But what I want to do this morning with you is take a fresh look at it. In these two verses, the writer compares the Christian life to a race. And his exhortation to his audience was for them to run the race that God had laid out for them. This was his key concern. Apparently, the Hebrews had begun to grow cold, and over time, they had become sluggish. They were no longer running well. They needed to straighten up and get back in the race. So the writer of Hebrews called them to be diligent and to run the race and to run it so as to win the prize. It's not enough to run. You want to run so as to win. And friends, that same call extends to you and I today. To run the race that God has laid before us. No matter your age, if you are the Lord's, you are called to run. And you must run. And you must strive to run with excellence. But the question is, how do we run well? If you want to know some methods and theories, uh, just go to your local Christian bookstore. I don't know if you guys have a Christian bookstore in Graham. No. Okay, you could go to Amazon probably. I'm sure you could find plenty of options. There are all sorts of theories as to how to run well. But if the prize is on the line in the race set before you, then we want to know what has God said about how to run. And that's what I want to help you see this morning. Specifically, this verse, these two verses, God gives us, the writer of Hebrews gives us, four keys for running the Christian race well. And I want us to look at them one by one this morning. Let me give them to you quickly, then we'll walk through them together. Four keys for running well. First, remember the past. Remember the past. Second, beware of hindrances. Beware of hindrances. Third, consider the course. And fourth, look to Jesus. So we will see these four points in Hebrews 12, 1-2. So if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne You can be seated. Before we begin, I want to pray that the Lord would help us see wonderful things in His Word. Father, we come to You 
as those who need your help. We need your help to see this truth as clearly as the original audience saw it and as clearly as the Spirit of God would have us see it. So Father, would you work in us, help us, quicken us to see what you would have us to see here. And Lord, we know that apart from your Spirit's work through your Word in our hearts, uh, this is a formal exercise that's vain and empty. So Lord, help us. We pray that you would come, that you would quicken us, that you would help us to see your truth in a fresh light. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the letter of Hebrews, if you've read it, uh, is, is more of a sermon, really, than a letter. And from the sermon, we can gather that the people that being addressed were not doing well. Hebrews is notoriously uh, famous for these really harsh warnings. If you read the book of Hebrews, you get the, the, the sense that things are not what they need to be. And the, this group of people, this church, they were predominantly Jewish, and they had left Judaism to follow Christ. And having left Judaism, they were scorned the whole way out. They were cut off from their family, cut off from friends. They were cut off from social gatherings. Everything in life for them was tied up with Jewishness. And when they left it, they lost almost everything. But they gained Christ. Well, it cost these dear people everything when they decided to follow Christ. The intense persecution that came after their decision had went on for a season, but then the persecution began to die down. But it seems like from reading Hebrews that at some point along the way, there seems to have risen up a season of persecution for this church. And you can almost see these Christians squirming underneath the pressure that is they're under. It was a hard situation that they were in. But, there was an easy way out for them. There was an easy button for them to push if they wanted to. You know what the button was? It was go back to Judaism. Just stop following Jesus the Messiah and go back to the old Judaism and you can have your life back. And it will be easy and comfortable. And things will be what they once were. Leave the so-called new religion and the trial would end. And this desire for relief was exerting a powerful pull on many of the Hebrews. And you know that. If you're underneath a a heavy pressure, a season of trial for a long amount of time, you start to long just for the trial to end. When will it end? And you look for escapes, ways to get out from underneath the trial. And the preacher's desire to the letter to the Hebrews here was that they would not go and hit the easy button, but that they would endure. That they would be firm. Endure the persecution. Endure the difficulties. And continue to press on to follow Christ. And so, in order to help them persevere, the writer reminded the Hebrews of a few fundamental truths throughout his whole sermon. So this is just by way of context before we get into the first point. And in order to help them persevere, the writer of Hebrews reminded them first that Jesus was far superior to any and everything else. Right? When you read Hebrews, 
you get that. Right? Jesus is better than this. Uh, we'll just walk you through. The first four chapters, we see that Jesus is better or superior to the angels and superior to the great prophet Moses. Jesus is better. Chapters 4 to 7, Jesus is better than the high priests. Chapters 8 to 10, we see that Jesus' high priestly ministry is superior on the grounds that He has enacted a much better covenant in a superior superior sanctuary by virtue of a better eternal sacrifice. Namely, the sacrifice of Himself. Jesus is a better priest. So the preacher first wanted these struggling Christians to see that in every way, the one whom they were following was better. He was better than everything else. So why would you go to an inferior to escape persecution? Why would you turn to something that's lesser to escape persecution? Why would you leave Jesus? To leave Him to go back to Judaism, to the old system, is foolishness. That's the first fundamental truth. Second, the second fundamental truth was that not only is Jesus superior to the other ways, but He's the only way. The other ways aren't really ways. Jesus is the only way to salvation. There was no other way outside of Christ. To leave Judaism and to go back, or to leave Jesus, rather, and to go back to Judaism was to cut yourself off from the only way of salvation. This is why you read these harsh warnings in Hebrews and everyone wrestles with, is this a believer or an unbeliever? Can you lose your salvation or not? Right? You're familiar with those struggles. Well, it seems as if the writer of Hebrews is just being black and white. If you leave Jesus to go back to Judaism, you have no salvation. In fact, he says it's as if you are crucifying the Messiah again. And in chapter 10, he says it's as if you are trampling Him underneath your feet. If you leave Jesus to go back to the old system, there is no hope for you. Why? Because there's no hope in any other system. There's no hope in anyone else except who? Jesus. So Jesus is superior. This is context. Jesus is superior. He's the only way to salvation. And the third fundamental truth was that throughout history, God's people have always suffered. God's people have always suffered. They have not had it easy in this life. They've always faced disheartening circumstances. It's never been simple for them. It's never been easy. And so, Hebrews, you shouldn't be surprised to find yourself underneath the foot of providence, as it were. You shouldn't be surprised that life is hard. Why? You, you, whenever you decided to follow Christ, He told you to do something. He told you to count the cost. Right? Count the cost. And part of the cost is that if you decide to follow this King, you lose everything. In fact, you must sacrifice everything 
in order to follow Him. Isn't that what it means to take up a cross and follow Him? The entryway into following this King, our King, is through self-sacrifice. So don't be surprised that life is hard. And we see this so clearly in Hebrews chapter 11. The chapter right before 12 where we are. This is the hall of faith. And what we see in this chapter is that saint after saint lived underneath the heavy hand of persecution. And how did these dear people endure? You tell me. How did they endure? By faith. By faith. By faith, they endured and looked forward to the promise of God. This is what saints do. Right? This is what we do. In Hebrews 11 specifically, he gives this panoramic sweep of the Old, of Old Testament history that highlights the enduring faith of saints. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death by the sword. Yet, they endured by faith. And they pressed on with a fixed eye on what God had promised. Now, we come to chapter 12. And when we get here, the first word in our text, Hebrews 12, chapter 1, is therefore. And that connects us back to these three fundamental truths I just explained. In other words, what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is in light of Jesus' superiority and the fact that Jesus is the only way to salvation and the reality that saints have always suffered. In light of those things, you therefore run the race that God has set before you. Don't stop running. Keep it up. Stop whining. Stop moping. Stop dragging your feet. Get up and run the race that God has called you to run. And that brings us to our text. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The first thing that the writer of Hebrews mentions here is that if you're going to run the Christian race well, and I have no doubt, friends, that you want to run the Christian race well. I know you want to run well. If you're the Lord's, you want to run well. And the first thing that the writer of Hebrews would have you to know if you're going to run so as to win is to remember the past. You must remember that you are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses who have already run the race before you. Look at verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Now what is this cloud of witnesses? Well, the figure of a cloud was used to describe, describe the massive crowds that would gather to watch events during these athletic events during the first century. The athlete would be in the Colosseum and he would look up and see the enormous crowd and it would look as if it was a cloud of witnesses surrounding him. But here, in our context, the word simply refers to a large group. It's just a crowd. 
And the crowd of witnesses are those faithful saints who have run before us, cataloged in Hebrews 11. Do you see that? Now, why are they called witnesses? We're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Well, some have taken this to mean that the figures of Hebrew, the, of Hebrews 11, that these saints of old, are witnesses in the sense that they're spectators. They're up in heaven, and they're looking down on you, running your race. And some argue that that is what the writer of Hebrews is talking about here. It's possible that that's what he's talking about, but I, I think he, that misses the real point of what the preacher is trying to say. And so let me, let me show you what I think he means when he says, you're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. The men and women of Hebrews 11 are brought forward to the Hebrew Christians as models, as examples of what true faith looks like. Right? If we were to walk through the life of each figure, we would see a similar pattern in each figure. First, an individual receives a promise. Second, the circumstances of that individual seem to contradict the promise that God has given. And third, despite their contrary circumstance, the individual takes God at His word and presses on. Let me me give you an example of that with Abraham. What was the promise that God had given Abraham? You will bear a son. Your wife will bear a son. God came to Abraham with that specific promise. Right? That's the word from God. Now, what's the contrary circumstance? Well, Abraham and Sarah, as the Apostle Paul put it, were as good as dead. Right? As good as dead people don't bear children. Right? Right. So Abraham and Sarah were at a, at a crisis here. God has promised, I'm going to give you a child. And Abraham and Sarah are saying, God, we're really old. <laughs> this, this doesn't work this way. Old people don't have children. So what were they going to do? Were they going to take God at His word? Or were they going to believe their circumstances? Do you see the dilemma? That's the fight of faith. And you fight that faith every morning. right? We fight it all day. Are we going to believe our circumstances? Or are we going to believe God's word? And Abraham took God at His Word, and continued to believe Him even though His circumstances seemed to speak a different word. And that is faith. Abraham became more and more convinced that God was able to do what He promised, even as his circumstances continued to to argue against that. And that's faith. This is the sort of experience that the Hebrews were having. They were suffering and it was hard, but God had promised them something. Now what were they going to do? Were they going to believe God, or were they going to call Him a liar? And friends, we have been given extraordinary promises by God. Our circumstances often seem to discredit that promise. And we have to fight to believe God, to take Him at His word every day. And part of running the race well is that you're engaged in that battle. If you're not, you're not winning the race. If you are not fighting to take God at His word, you will not endure. Well, so in this sense, back to our text, 
The figures of Hebrews 11 are examples to us of people who fought to take God at His Word. But notice, more specifically, the preacher doesn't say that we are surrounded by a cloud of examples. Does he? Does your text say that? No. It's a cloud of witnesses. Why? Why are they called a cloud of witnesses? What are they witnessing to? Let me tell you. When Abraham took God at His Word, he ventured out on God's promises and lived as if what God had said was absolutely certain. Now the question is, did God end up making a fool out of Abraham? Abraham believed God. And then he lived as if what God had said was absolutely true. And this is the difficulty. Is God going to be faithful to uphold His Word to weak, sinful people like us? Or is He at the very end going to pull the rug out from under us? Is God going to be faithful? Well, God was faithful to Abraham, right? So much so that when Abraham goes to sacrifice Isaac, Abraham has become convinced that God is going to raise Isaac from the dead. Why? Because God has already said He was going to bless Abraham and the nations through this individual. And now God is telling me to kill him. I don't know what He's calling me. I don't know why He's telling me to do this. But I know that He has the power to do whatever He wants. And if He calls me to kill this son I love, I'm going to do it. Because I know He's going to bring him back from the dead. And it's interesting. If you read the account, Abraham says to his men at the bottom of the mountain, me and the boy are going to go worship and then we will come back to you. And then later on, in Hebrews 11, we see that Abraham actually believed that God was going to raise him up from the dead. It's incredible. Well, God was faithful and provided. And Abraham continued to take God at His word, and God continued to deliver. God came through, and God did exactly as He said He would. And that is what God always does. God is always faithful, and He always comes through on His Word. And so, when the writer of Hebrews says that we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, here's what he means. He means that we have in our view, in our past rather, a long catalog of people who took God at His Word and demonstrated for us time and time again that our God is faithful to His Word. So trust Him. Trust Him. He is relentlessly faithful. All that He has promised will certainly come about. The lives of the Old Testament saints continue to bear witness to us of that reality. So when I say, remember the past, if you're going to run well, you've got to remember the past, that's what we're, that's what I mean, and that's what I think the writer of Hebrews is saying. Remember the history of God's faithfulness to weak, sinful people like you. John MacArthur captures this truth well when he writes this. Seeing how God was with the saints of Hebrews 11 encourages us to trust that He will also be with us. The same God who was their God is our God. The God of yesterday is the God of today and tomorrow. He has not weakened 
or lost interest in His people or lessened His love or care for them. We can run as well as they did. It has nothing to do with how we compare with them, but in how our God compares with their God. Because we have the same God. He can do the same things through us if we trust Him. We have the same God as them. I remember when I was in Bible college, I was able to go to Southern Seminary for a preview day. And it was wonderful. I'd never been to Southern, um, and I know that you guys have a Southern alumni as your uh, pastor. Um, and this is in no way to win his favor. Um, but I remember going uh, to this preview day, and we got to tour Albert Moeller's mansion. And you're probably aware that at the bottom of this mansion, he has this huge library. Uh, and it's it's a wonder, really, to explore. And I was probably more giddy about it than I should have been. Um, but we got to go through and look at all the books, and it was just really a, a, a sweet thing to see. And at the end of it, we we were able to have dessert with Dr. Moeller and his wife. And I remember being so nervous about meeting this man. Uh, and just sort of my heart flutter. You know how you are when you get nervous about meeting someone? You get nervous about meeting people, right? Okay, good. Sometimes you think you're the only person. And I'm glad you guys do the same thing. Um, but I found myself... You know, just sort of my heart fluttering as I'm walking up to meet Dr. Moeller. And I shook his hand and he, I forget, I don't even remember what he said. I was so, uh, was so nervous about it. And I remember walking down these steps and thinking, you know what? It is so foolish for me to be nervous. Albert Moeller is a weak, sinful man, just like me. The, the difference between he and I is that right now, he is absolutely aware that his God is sovereign and in control. And I am so nervous about what this man's going to think about me. But the point was that Dr. Moeller has done all this great work, and I was so nervous to meet him. But we're, we're all the best of us to the least of us. We are all sinners at best. The, the thing that brings us together is that we serve the same God. And what this God calls us to do is take Him at His word. And He will be faithful. And friends, if you're going to run well, you have to remember the past. You have to remember that God is faithful and He has always been faithful. And He will demonstrate His unrelenting faithfulness to you. Second, if we're going to run well, we must beware of hindrances. So remember the past, but also beware of hindrances. And these are primarily hindrances in your own life. Notice the next thing he mentions in verse 1. He says, let us also lay aside every encumbrance or weight and the sin which so easily entangles us. In the first century, athletes would strip down to almost nothing to compete. And the purpose of that was that they didn't want anything to interfere or give their enemy a foothold. And still, we see that today. Athletes train, they eat, they exercise, they do everything in order to have some leg up on their uh, competition. No serious athlete goes out to run a marathon with a backpack on his back. It's not how you compete. It's just common sense. But when it comes to running the Christian race... 
Sometimes we lose sight of this basic strategy of laying aside things that hinder us from running well. And the writer of Hebrews gives us two types of hindrances that we need to be aware of. The first, he calls encumbrances or weights. Now this refers to anything that would hinder you from running the race. Uh, These are simply impediments. We could call them excesses. In fact, the word referred to excess clothing, but also excess body fat. So anything that's just excess, it's extra. These are things that are not necessarily sinful, but they're going to slow you down in running the race. And if you want to win the race, your question is not how much can I carry with me, but what all can I leave behind? And these are those types of things. Things that you need to lay aside, the writer says. And notice also, the writer doesn't give us a list of what these weights are. He doesn't say, these are the encumbrances that you must lay aside. He leaves it open-ended, and he does so, so that we are forced to examine ourselves and wrestle with the question, is this a weight in my race? leaves us to, to wrestle with the question of weights we have around us and what we're carrying. And so we have to therefore examine ourselves to see what kind of weights we have acquired. The thing about these weights and encumbrances is that you acquire them without even knowing it. You remember your first, those of you who are married, you remember your first few years of marriage? Um, you start out with nothing, right? But... Year three, four, five, your garage is full, and you're 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 thinking, how in the world did we get all this stuff? Right? This is how encumbrances are. You're just living, right? And slowly you start to acquire things. You start to do things, and the the weight starts to pack on, and you start to feel it, and you don't even recognize that you have acquired so much weight. And if you're not careful, the weight that you have acquired in your life will hinder you from running well. And if you don't run well, you don't win the prize. Spurgeon said, we cannot win if we're weighted. The pace will have to be very swift and we cannot get to it or even keep it up if we have weights to carry. Unloaded, we shall find the race taxing all our powers. But weighted down we shall be doomed to failure. We've got to lay aside excess. Let me give you a tool to help you figure out what weights or encumbrances you have in your life. Take anything you do, any practice in your life, and ask this question. Does this specific thing help me to run the race better? Does this help me to run the race better? If the answer is no, then it has the potential of being a hindrance or encumbrance in your life. And I would challenge you, filter through everything you do. Does this thing hinder me? Or does it help me to run my race better? Let me give you another tool. Before you make a purchase, or before you make 
Any commitments for the fall? I saw baseball sign-ups and all, or some sports sign-ups even coming in. Um, before you sign up for one of these things, ask this. Will this help me to run better? Will this purchase help me to run my race better? Or will this purchase or sign up, will this slow me down? And this can be simple as the purchase of a pet or a new property. Will this help me to run better? Will this thing increase my speed or drag me down? Will this help me to serve the Lord better in my brief life or hinder me from the work that God has called me to do? You, friend, were called to run a race. You don't, you don't go fill your backpack with as much as you can before you run the race. We want to think simple and we want to think carefully about everything we do because we are called to run for the glory of God. So that is weights and encumbrances. But there's an additional thing that he mentions. In addition to weights, there is a second hindrance. The preacher says that Hebrews must, the Hebrews must lay aside the sin which so easily entangles us. Lay aside weights and encumbrances, but also sins. And they, these sins easily entangle us. That's the nature of sin. It's to ensnare. And if sin is not laid aside in your life on an ongoing basis, it will entangle you and keep you from running your race well. And to entangle means refers to having something tightly wound around you. It has tight control over you. The more you become an ally with sin in your life, the tighter the grip sin has on you. The more you sin, the more sin's power has in your life. Sin entangles and does not let go. And if you're not fighting, friend, if you're not fighting its influence, then its power is increasing. And you're like someone who's trying to run a race with your shoelaces tied together. You're not going to run. You may try, but you're not going to finish. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, run the race that God has laid before you. So I would challenge you. Look at your life. Are you a Christian? Well, look at your life. Consider, where are the areas that you have grown comfortable with ensnaring sin. Right? Sin is sort of like, to, to change the metaphor, you know, it's like Satan's bait on a hook. Right? If you're fishing, you put on a worm or some sort of bait, some sort of fancy um, material to hide the hook. Right? So the fish doesn't see the hook. He only sees the allurement and he lays hold of it. And there's the hook. That's what Satan does. Right? He, he sort of baits his hook and and puts these things before us to hide the hook. And what we want to do sometimes is just sort of get as much as the worm off the hook as we can without biting it. But Satan has been fishing for a long, long time. And he knows how to hook. So your best move, Christian, friend, is to not even look at the hook. Right? Right? Don't try to nibble the bait 
and not bite the hook. Run from it. Flee temptation. Look at your life. Where are you dabbling with these baits? Where are you becoming comfortable with sin in your life? Where is unrepentant sin reigning in your life? Have you made an ally with sin? I'm willing to crucify every sin in my life except for this one sin that I'm going to keep in my back pocket. When life gets really hard, I'll pull this one out. The Puritans would call those bosom sins. Those are sins that you just carry really close to your chest. And those are the most painful to let go. But if you're going to run well, you've got to sacrifice that. You've got to crucify that sin. And I would exhort you, friend, at this very moment, resolve with God's help to renew your efforts against fighting sin and entangling sin. Sin will take you further than you want to go. And it will tie you up. So crucify. Don't dabble with it anymore. Be done with it. And run. Commit with God's help to lay sin aside. So here's the point. There are two types of hindrances that will keep you, Christian, from running your race well. The general excesses of life, which are called encumbrances or weights, and the sins that you've made friends with in your life. If you continue to load down your life with encumbrances and and entertain uh, sin in your life without repenting, you will not run your race well. If you fail to do this, you'll fail to win the prize. So you need to remember the past. You're going to run well. You need to beware of hindrances. And there's a third thing. You need to consider the course. Look at verse 1. He says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I'm convinced personally that many do not run the race well because they are unaware of the type of race we have been called to run. By looking at some Christians, you would think that the Christian life is more like a leisurely stroll than a serious race. But notice, the first part of verse 1 says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. To run with endurance implies a sort of long-distance race. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there are some people who are crazy enough to run 100-mile races. Did you know that? They train, they dedicate themselves to this kind of endurance race. And this is the sort of race that the writer of Hebrews has in mind. Not a sprint, but an endurance race. It's a marathon. And the word here is agon. It's where we, from where we get the word agony. It, it speaks of engaging in intense struggle. Specifically, struggle against strong opposition. The word could refer to wrestling or boxing or some other athletic event. But in our context specifically, he's talking about a race. And it's a struggle. It's agonizing. It's, it's hard. And it seems like it may never end. If you're like me, that's how you feel if you run, try to run two miles. This is not going to end. Well, this is a long distance race. 
It's, it's painful. And he says that this is the race that's set before us. The imagery here is of an athlete. He's trained. He's worked hard. He's laid aside excesses. And he's coming up to the starting line. And he looks out before him. And in front of him, he sees the course laid out. And he's able to analyze it and calculate how he's going to run. There's a certain strategy involved in carefulness, planning, and thoughtfulness. He's not just saying, well, I'll just run and we'll see what happens. He knows that the race itself will not be easy. He will be taxed and stretched further than he's ever been stretched. And if he doesn't calculate the course well, he knows he will not be able to finish. That's the course we've been called to run. I remember when I was in high school, I played sports and uh, one it was off season and uh, one day our coach came into the field house and said I want all of you to come outside the uh, long distance guys were were training uh, running around the track and we came onto the football field and he said I want you to watch these guys run and so we did for a while there was one long distance runner we had who came from a family of Olympic athletes uh, specifically in long distance so he was just excellent and we watched them run, and our football coach said, all right, which one of you wants to challenge him in the mile? And we were all competitive, but none of us really wanted to run a mile, uh, except the fastest guy on our team said, I'll do it. And so we thought, this is going to be a piece of cake for him. This guy runs like a 4-3-40, which is extremely fast, and he's going he's gonna to put this guy in the dust. And they took off, and he did, uh, for the first 400 meters, uh, he was running, and it was wonderful, and we were all pumped as his, his um, you know, fellow teammates. We were going to show these long-distance guys how to do it. Well, by the second lap, we, saw, we started that we could see that he was losing some, some uh, gas, right? He was looking like he was about to pass out. And in the beginning of the third lap, he actually did. And we had to take him off the track. What was the problem? Well, the problem was... He was so used to running sprints that he had never ran a a mile like that before. And so he got out there and he let his competitive drive uh, sort of rule the day. And it cost him. He miscalculated the type of race that he was running. Sometimes you feel like, man, I am getting nowhere in the Christian life. Right? Do you feel that way sometimes? You feel like, man, this is hard. This is tough work. Well, at that moment, you have to remember this is not a sprint. This is a marathon. This is a long distance race. Keep going. Don't quit. Push on. Don't live under the illusion that this is an easy race. It's not. It takes work and determination. Don't quit. Because you've ran poorly up until this point. And if you're sitting there thinking, well, if this is a race and you've got to win, run as to win the prize, I'm losing and I'm not going to win the prize. Well, friend, that doesn't have to be the final word. It's never too late with God's help to get up and determine with His help to run the race. There's still time. And the key here is that you would run the race with endurance. That is, we are to bear up underneath the difficulties that the race brings and be steadfast. Speed is not the key, 
but endurance is the key. And the Hebrew Christians had begun to lose sight of this, and the writer of Hebrews comes along and says, you need to run your race with endurance. This is a marathon. Keep pressing on. So let me ask, and I want you to think about this. Are you running the race in such a way as to win the prize? Could we look at your life and say, here is a man, here is a woman who's running so as to win. Have you considered the type of race that God has called you to run? It's a marathon. It will be hard. It requires endurance. Are you strategizing to win? Are you thinking about how to put off sin and put on righteousness? Does that sort of thinking mark your life? Or are you just sort of leisurely coming to church, you know, doing Bible studies, doing this thing or another thing? Or are you seriously considering the race that God has laid out before you? No one wins without strategizing, planning, and without holy sweat. And it will require that if you're going to win. So you've got to remember the past. Beware of hindrances. Consider the type of race. It's a marathon. It's going to be hard. And fourth, you must, if you're going to win and run well, look to Jesus. Continually look at Jesus. Look at verse 2. It says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. If you're going to win, fix your eyes on Christ. That is, to look to Him without distraction. It's to turn away from everything else, difficulty, pain, how well everyone else is running, and fix your eyes on Jesus. And that may sound like a total contradiction to all that I've just said about examining your life, about weights and hindrances. But it's not. Let me show you why. If you were trying to run your race, and you have a preoccupation with yourself, right? your trial, your surroundings, or you're looking at other Christians, you will not run well. You don't want to be preoccupied with yourself. A healthy examination of how you're running is what you need. But morbid introspection will not help you run well. I love the way that the Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane put it. He said, for every one look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. That's great advice. We'll look at ourselves only. If you just look at yourself, you will find ample reason to stop running. You'll be distracted, ineffective. You will not run well. So don't fixate on yourself. Look to Jesus. We also don't want to be preoccupied with other Christians. And if we're looking around at where everyone else is in relationship to us, that can also be discouraging. We want to learn from our brothers and sisters, but if we focus all of our time comparing ourselves to them, we're not going to run well. So get your eyes onto Jesus and focus on Him. And what do we see when we look to Jesus? What do we see? Well, we certainly find all we could ever need in Him. But the writer of Hebrews wants us to see something very specific. 
And that's this. When we fix our eyes on Jesus, we will find the One who is both the author and perfecter of our faith. First, He's the author. This term can mean the author, founder, originator, or leader. But in this context, the idea is of a leader, but specifically one who is like a trailblazer. One who runs the trail before us. A pioneer who makes the way for us to run. Jesus is the one who blazed the trail before us. He's the first one to complete the course of faith. And He then is our chief example. Thus, we look to Him as the object of our faith. What did He lay aside? What did He lay hold of? How did He endure? He's gone before us and we are to follow Him. He is the pace setter. And we run behind Him. We are not pioneering this. He is our trailblazer. The author of our faith. Second, He's the perfecter of our faith. The word here refers to one who brings something to a successful Conclusion. That is, He's the consummator or the finisher. Jesus is the one who not only pioneered pioneered the trail for us to run, but He ran in such a way as to bring to a full conclusion the work of faith. He perfectly abided in the Father's will and carried out the work that God had given Him to the extent that on the cross He could say, it is finished. Completed. The work was done. He's the perfecter of faith. And His victory in the race makes it possible for you and I to even run the race. Without Him, we have no hope. How is this the case? How is He the author, perfecter of our faith? Well, look at the next part of verse 2. Who for the joy set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. If faith is the ability to look beyond the current contrary circumstances to the promised Word of God, then Jesus exercised faith perfectly. For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. And certainly that was the joy of sitting down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's how the verse concludes. And this is the climax of His work on the cross. Sitting down at the right hand of the throne of God. That coincides well with Psalm 1611. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's where Christ is. But along the way to the right hand of the Father, Christ pressed on with joy as He looked to His ultimate aim of reconciling sinners to the Father through His work. His delight was to reconcile sinners to God. So the joy set before Him was to be at the Father's right hand. But along the way to the Father's right hand was your reconciliation, sinner. And He accomplished that by enduring the cross, despising its shame. Endure the cross. The cross was where reconciliation happened. He despised its shame. That's not to say he looked with scorn at it, 
but it means that he treated it as if it had little value in comparison to what the shame would win for him. The right hand of the Father and reconciled sinners. The shame of the cross means that he treated it as insignificant. It's little consequence to him. It was nothing in light of the joy of accomplishing the Father's will of reconciling sinners to God. So, in conclusion, if you're going to run well, and I hope you want to run well, you must fix your eyes on Jesus. He is the goal. Jesus is the goal. He's the reward we must continually gaze at. But Jesus is more than a goal and a prize. He's the leader. He's the trailblazer who has finished the race for us victoriously. And the cross did not deter Him from gaining the victory. Yet, Jesus' victory, and this is so important, Jesus' victory as the author and perfecter of our faith does not nullify your efforts to run the race He's called you to run. It actually it puts wind in our sails because we cannot lose. Right? The race we're called to run is a race that Jesus has won already for us. But He calls us to run behind Him as those who are following Him. So all our effort, all our holy sweat and tears, all of it is motivated by the reality that Jesus is our sufficient champion. And He's won the race on our behalf. And friend, if you resolve with His help to run, you will never lose. He has secured your victory. Nevertheless, push on and run. So, if we're going to run well, remember the past, beware of hindrances, consider the course, and fix your eyes upon Jesus. May the Lord help us to do that. We pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. And we pray, help us to walk closely and run swiftly behind our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.